What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we're joined by the new chair of the London Assembly, plus Professor Samuel Green, the director of the Russia Institute at King's College London, will be joining us for the latest on Ukraine. So the government says it will bring urgency, impatience and determination to deliver on its mission of getting our country back on track and easing the burdens on families and businesses. Boris Johnson's administration is setting out its legislative agenda today for the next parliamentary session in its Queen's speech. But it is a Queen's speech with a difference because it will be delivered by Prince Charles with the Queen suffering from ongoing mobility issues. Now, in all, 38 parliamentary bills are due to be unveiled with the focus on boosting economic growth. Measures will include education reforms to raise standards in schools and a new drive to build nuclear power stations and to expand offshore wind power. But the government is reported to have dropped plans for a bill which would have created a single agency to enforce employee rights. Okay, so that's the Queen's speech. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson's Conservatives, of course, lost the three London strongholds in last week's local election, that is in Barnet, in Wandsworth and Westminster. Sophologists will be trying to explain exactly why, no doubt for days, but one reason could be the narrow post-Brexit nationalism, as it's perceived by some of the Tory government. One newspaper quoted Conservative leader of Barnet Council, Daniel Thomas, saying that the loss of Barnet Council was a warning shot from Conservative voters. Well, joining us now is Labour's Dr Onka Sahota, who took over as chair of the London Assembly uh, this week. Onka, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, the Queen's speech uh, says it aims to grow the economy and ease the burden of rising costs and to level up the UK. Do you worry that London uh, risks missing out as the government focuses on the Midlands and the North? Um, good morning. I think I'll answer the question as the as you say as a Labour member for Ealing and LinkedIn. And of course, I think the opportunity has been lost. When I was on the doorstep, people were concerned about the cost of living, and and, and they were concerned about uh, how the Prime Minister's uh, own views on them uh, on the party case. And I think that the cost of living crisis is a real concern for Londoners. And leveling up doesn't mean leveling London down. It means that we bring up the rest of the country uh, to the standards of London and, and let London grow too. Um, so I, I think the, 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 the uh, policy of the government about levelling up is geographical-based rather than needs-based. There are pockets of London which have high levels of deprivation, communities who are, who, are, who are quite deprived. And London, whilst 
has got one of the best national securities also, but we also have a huge, huge burden of inequality in London too. And 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 you can't just say London's doing all right, uh, and you're ignoring all those vulnerable communities in London too. Okay. Um, in 2018, the Conservatives held seven London councils out of 32. They certainly don't have uh, even that now. Why, on the flip side, do you think that what are seen and, and are affluent areas, I mean, London is the wealthiest part of the whole country, um, why do you think that even affluent areas turned to Labour in London? I think that this was because people were very concerned about it, as I said, about the cost of living, but they were also concerned about the of all the... The party gate, I was hearing that this is a real issue, that the fact that the Prime Minister had lost um, its moral standing. And I think the public wanted to give a message to the government that you can't make one rule for all of us and live by different rules um, yourselves. And I think this is a, a, a boat ride where people wanted a real change. They wanted real opportunities for their communities. And that's why we see um, Wandsworth, Westminster and Barnet uh, being gained by Labour um, which they haven't had for previously for many, many years. Now, Ulez, uh, the Ulez uh, low, low emission zone is expanding uh, soon. Do you have any sympathy for people who live in outer London on, on modest incomes who may not be able to afford an expensive n- new car? I, I have a lot of sympathy for people uh, who, who can't afford the change, and I... And I hope that the government will help London in delivering a scrappy scheme. But I also do know, and I say this particularly as a background as a medical doctor, uh, that people can't afford to uh, inhale bad quality air. Um, we know that uh, uh, there are disproportionate amounts of deaths due to poor air quality in London. We also know that children's lungs are getting stunted because of uh, of uh, poor air quality. And we know that where we have introduced ULEZ, uh, there has been improvement in the health of people uh, and that we know that there are people's lives life improved. So I, I understand the dilemma, but none of us can afford to uh, inhale bad quality air. And I think the mayor's right to to pursue this policy, Uh, but I think the government needs to help London um, deliver uh, on the needs of Londoners too. Yes, but it's been years that we've had, um, you know, attempts to bring down the amount of motoring and therefore control air quality in London and nothing really has worked. I mean, air quality in London is still incredibly poor. The tracking of London air quality um, is also perhaps an issue. Why has this been um, so difficult to tackle for London, as you say, when it is clearly one of the most pressing health health issues for the capital. Uh, well, uh, I think that the previous to become becoming the mayor of London, uh, this wasn't being taken seriously. And do you know that, that none of the areas in London meet the WHO guidelines uh, for uh, for healthy air, right? And yeah. and, 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 and and none of them, and none of them reach the. Uh, guidelines for the nitrous oxide, uh, which uh, have been handled with World Health Organization. And have not done so for years. So this is... And have not done so for years. So so here we have a mayor, right, who is now, um, he himself has suffered from asthma. He knows what the the impact is. And we've had, for the first time, a a child dying in London whose cause of death, right, was recorded as as poor air quality. So there's an emergency taking place in London. And here we have a mayor who was serious about uh, about, uh, attacking this problem. Just because it hasn't been done for many, many years before, it doesn't mean that we don't do it now. 
But the mayor has been in office since 2016. No, I'm not criticising that, that we yeah. shouldn't act on it. Yeah. But, you know, you can seriously wonder why since 2016 the impact has not been felt more. I mean, especially because we had lockdown for months in London and that was something that had an impact on air quality. Yes, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm saying that the, the evidence has shown that, 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 that the, um, the, the, the number of hospital missions uh, for respiratory diseases has been reduced by 30% over this time. So we are making improvements. We are making uh, uh, roadways into this. And so I think, I think this is a right policy, but, but it, is a, it is incremental. You can't just do it overnight. We are making right steps and we're taking bold decisions for the future. Sadiq Khan's uh, precept for the council taxes has increased by uh, 9% this year, uh, meaning that the average London household will now pay him £400 a year. Uh, over the course of this uh, l- this Labour morality, council tax has risen much, much quicker, hasn't it, than when the Conservatives uh, uh, ran the uh, morality under uh, under Boris Johnson. Are you happy that uh, council tax is increasing whilst the cost of living is soaring for many Londoners? Well, I, I, I'm not happy about council tax being up, and, and, we, and let's be clear that the council tax is regressive and that we should be looking at much more fairer ways of raising money to support local communities. Um, I, I understand the council tax has pressure on the poorest communities and is never ideal. But on the other hand, we are faced right, with a, a government right, which has a been reducing the um, funding to be given to local authorities. The need for social services has gone up in the communities. We need to make sure that we have enough police officers on the road, that we have enough uh, police services and uh, fire services on the road, and that we need to make sure that uh, we are protecting uh, the community. So somehow we have to raise that money. And that's why I, I come to the, the argument as beforehand that levelling up, again, there should be just geographical, right? It should be needs-based. And I think London uh, needs the help of the government also in making sure that we get our fair share of, of the growth funds which are available. Uh, but I, 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 I agree entirely that the raising council tax is an aggressive tax, and we need to find much more way, fair ways of raising money for Londoners. Um, you mentioned policing. Um, I want to ask you about the policing strategy. This is of major concern. Um, are police numbers in London um, going up swiftly enough? There's, you know, there's there's a great concern around um, the loss of faith that there's been in policing by the Metropolitan Police. I think, of course, the police numbers have gone up, and the. Uh, been the, the highest since uh, when since Boris Johnson left City Hall uh, since 2016. But we need more police numbers, and, and of course, the fair share which London should be getting increased on is about 6,000 police officers now. We haven't promised that. But I, I think on top of that, it's not just about uh, increasing police numbers, right? It's also about creating the uh, the atmosphere or, um, that the London that there be attacks the causes of, of, of crime also uh, that means that our youth have closed down that we've had the deprivation um, increasing people who are feeling difficulty meeting the end meet so this all breeds crime and so we not only should be um, strong on uh, on crime or on criminals right but we should also, also be strong on the causes of crime and I think that, the, that, that that's why this mayor is making a lot of investment on, on a public health approach to crime and we need to be addressing those root causes also 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Joining us for that today is Bloomberg's Leanne Gerrans. Leanne, hello. So Keir Starmer leads many of the newspapers this morning, this pledge to resign if he's fired for what the newspapers call Big Eight. I mean, it's leading uh, to a lot of speculation, though, about who's actually going to succeed him. Is that really smart? I think that he is going on the lines that he is the opposition Labour leader, as we know, but he's also been named Mr. Rules. We did know that Keir Starmer isolated six times during the coronavirus pandemic, more than any other politician, because he is adamant that he sticks to the rules. And this is one of the main things that has always been part of Keir Starmer's makeup, if you like, within Parliament. So yesterday he did a press conference and it was quite revealing. He said, if I am found to have been broken the rules after this police investigation happens, I will step down because that is the right thing to do. He's saying, I believe in honour, integrity and the principle that those who make the laws must follow them. So speculation about who might follow him is an interesting one because behind the scenes, Labour, Caroline and Ewan are very, very confident that they didn't break any laws. And this is something Keir Starmer said time and time again yesterday. Mm. But then we also heard that his deputy, Angela Rayner, also says she'll step down if she is found to have broken these rules. So we might have a vacuum at the top of Labour. But the other thing that people are asking mm. are now Labour putting pressure on the police to clear them because they've both saying that they're going to resign. But of course, they're also putting pressure on Boris Johnson, who was fined and didn't resign. Yeah, quite a dramatic move uh, yesterday when I saw that on my phone. I was, gosh, goodness. I think you messaged me, actually. I did message you about it because I was watching the news and I really wasn't expecting to see that. But that is where Labour are standing firm at the moment. Yeah, quite something. And on the economic front, uh, retail sales have been pretty robust for the at the start of this year, consumers having some of those lockdown savings to spend. But it does look like the tide may have turned. A little bit, yeah. So you are right. I think there was a lot of pent-up demand. But UK retail sales are now falling. And this is really for the first time since January 2021. So you're right there, Ewan. As the cost of living crisis really begins to crush consumer confidence and does put the brake on spending. So the warning came in a closely watched survey by the British Retail Consortium, which said more pain is inevitable with stores having to raise prices further Now, this is really in an attempt to shield their profit margins. Um, The 0.3 decline in April from a year earlier, as I did mention, it's the first drop in over a year. And that was when the nation was in lockdown. I don't know if you can remember back to 2021 when we couldn't really spend that much money. Well, we could go to the supermarkets or online, but all the other rest of the high street um, shops were closed. And the figures really once again highlight the top 
toll being taken by the squeeze on household budgets. Mm. You know, and also we should just cast our minds back to last week when the BOE said it expects inflation to top 10% later this year in about October. And I think this is the highest since the 1980s. And they're also warning of a risk of recession. And I do feel like households are now tightening their belts where they can as they see how their prices rise and re-look at their budgets, really, Caroline, which I know you've had a look at your spreadsheets, Ava. (laughs) As have have I, you know, I've gone through all my... I don't think I know anybody who hasn't thought about it, given that, you know, prices are rising so rapidly. Yeah, so that three-tenths of 1% drop in retail sales. I mean, I think it's also interesting because those BRC figures that you mentioned, you know, the BRC tracks the amount of cash, the amount of money that people are spending on retail sales. It's not sort of a tally of, of how much in volume people are buying is actually cash going into stores so I think that's pretty fascinating yeah no and I absolutely agree with you but what's also interesting is most retail categories saw sales decline so Mm. furniture electrical goods and home accessories were hit the hardest now remember we were all buying those in lockdown as we didn't know what else to do but DIY so maybe people are now going out to buy other things like clothes because we can't just walk around in gym kit anymore the Angarians thanks so much for that update with some of today's uh, political stories Okay, let's uh, talk about uh, matters more serious then or other matters in terms of continental Europe. Ukrainian officials say that the port city of Odessa has been repeatedly bombed and the bodies of 44 people have been found in the rubble of a building which was destroyed in Kharkiv. Uh, It comes a day after Russia held a much-hyped military parade to commemorate the end of World War II. Now, there was a lot of Western speculation, media speculation, that Putin would use Use the moment to mark a dramatic new stage in his two-month war. But that really didn't materialise. Joining us now is Samuel Green, Professor in Russian Politics and the Director of the Russian Institute at King's College London. Professor, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Now, yeah. um, first of all, what is your view on what happened at the parade in Red Square? We did watch Putin's speech. Um, it was quite brief. It didn't mention mm-hmm. Ukraine by name. Why do you think that was? Well, I think he decided to sort of tread the path of, of least resistance, really. I mean, I think you know th- he would have had an opportunity if he wanted to, to declare a kind of victory. Um, and he would have had an opportunity if he wanted to, to declare a, a broader war. But I think that he decided he wanted to leave himself um, sort of some rhetorical room for, uh, for maneuver. Right. Um, to be able to make a decision down the road in terms of how long he wants to prosecute this war. Clearly, look, I mean, it was a belligerent speech. He's laying claims to significant portions of Ukrainian territory. It's a step back, I suppose, from you know laying claims to the entirety of Ukraine, as he did essentially when, when he announced the war. Um, but, uh, you know, he, so he's, he's clearly not done fighting, and yet he's not willing to tell the Russian people uh, that they will have to continue to make very significant economic sacrifices and sacrifices in terms of the lives of their uh, of their sons and husbands, moral sacrifices uh, in terms of the cost of this war to Ukraine, right? Um, for uh, you know the indefinite future. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about how long this uh, war is going to continue. The consensus seems to be that uh, it's going to grind on slowly and painfully. Is that your view too? Uh, it is at the moment. It's hard not to come to that conclusion. They seem to be looking to cement control over, you know, significant parts of, of eastern and, and, and southern Ukraine, possibly cutting Ukraine off more or less from the Black Sea entirely. 
that will not be an easy thing to do. Uh, that still requires taking large cities, including Odessa, which you just mentioned. Um, and, and it's not entirely clear that they have the wherewithal to do that. Certainly, Ukraine has the wherewithal to to defend it. And so, um, you know, without the ability to move quickly, without the ability to make uh, those sorts of gains, uh, Russia does seem to be looking towards making this a war of attrition, um, assuming that uh, that Ukraine at, at some point will uh, possibly be worn down. But but more importantly, I think from their perspective, that um, that the West may eventually you know, lose patience and commitment. President Joe Biden is worried, um, has said out loud that uh, he's concerned that the Russian president doesn't have a way out right now of the war. This is the UK government has pledged an extra £1.3 billion in military support. Um, what then is this sort of next move? It's continued pressure, continued money uh, to, to support Ukraine in the fighting on the ground. Well, that is a big part of it, right? And and Ukraine obviously, you know, is 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 fighting alone, right? But it is fighting with the support of Western governments, and is it is fighting with Western you know, governments doing as much as they can, or as much as they feel they're able to do to help Russia lose this war. The question is, what does it mean for Russia to lose the war, right? Um, does it mean, uh, you know, going back to the the status quo on the on the twenty third of February when when they controlled only much smaller parts of of Ukraine? Does it mean going back to the status quo before 2014 when they controlled none of Ukraine? Um, and, uh, you know, that's a question really only only Kiev can can answer, um, uh, except that, you know, to a certain extent, obviously, Putin has to make a decision about what, you know, what kind of a, a resolution he can can live with. I think what what we're heading towards, most likely, uh, is some kind of um, some kind of a ceasefire, not quite a, a peace agreement, right, but eventually a ceasefire in which uh, you know neither side gets anything like what they want, right? So so Russia controls ends up controlling a significant portion of Ukrainian territory, but but uh, you know not a lot of the things that that it was aiming for, um, and, and Ukraine is left not fully able to to regain sovereignty. How important is uh, a, a continued ramp up of the energy embargo? The EU's struggling to get this agreed with Hungary holding out on this issue. But G7 countries say they're going to stop importing oil. Gas is altogether more difficult. But uh, how important is, 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 is cutting this off? It's not going to stop the war, is it? Well, not in the short term. I mean, they do still have significant reserves. And, and, and uh, even if they don't, you know, they, they're burning through them at, at, at quite a clip. Um, but no, they can continue to fight this war. And look, this this war, you know, I, I still don't have a great understanding. Like none of us do have a great understanding of of what Putin ever thought he was going to benefit, uh, what he was going to get from this war. But the reality is, it's it's not being you know fought on a on a on a sort of rational cost benefit analysis, right? So he will probably continue to fight even if he feels like he's taking significant economic losses. Uh, but those losses will. Uh, you know, sap the the ability of of, of the Russian war machine to uh, to keep going to to, to purchase uh, and build new equipment, uh, to recruit new soldiers, um, and to continue to feed the population at the same time that it's uh, uh, that, that it's fighting this war. Um, you know, already the sanctions are, are are hitting. They're not hitting as hard now as they will, I think, towards the the second uh, or or third quarter of this year. But um, but they will. Uh, continue to bite, um, energy sanctions will, will, will only multiply. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.